Today's interview is focused on the diagnosis and treatment of five common foot diagnoses, including onychomycosis, ingrown toenails, bunions, diabetic foot care, and plantar fasciitis. I am your host, Dr. Jen Cottle, and with me today is Dr. Masai J. Smith, who's also known as America's Foot Doctor. Dr. Smith is a podiatric surgeon who received his doctorate of podiatry from Temple University. Dr. Smith is the author of Mischief Makers, a fictional suspense novel, and a second book entitled Feet Naturally, Nature's Guide for Healthy Feet. Dr. Smith, welcome to ReachMD. <laughs> good morning. How are you, Dr. Cottle? I'm good. Thanks so much for joining us. I know you have a busy day today. Are you in surgery? No, not, not today. Next week I have a busy surgical schedule, but today I'm okay. Okay, wonderful. I reserved it for you. Uh, well, thank you. I know our listeners are really going to enjoy hearing some of these really common topics that we see in family medicine. So you're an expert in feet. You're a podiatrist. Yes, I am. Yes, I wanted to get your take on some conditions that we often see in family medicine and kind of help walk us through these conditions. So let's start with onychomycosis. Can you tell us kind of what causes it or at least what symptoms... Uh, a patient might present with? You know what, onychomycosis, layman terms, a nail fungus. <laughs> Everybody's familiar with it. You know what, nail fungus is, is caused by a dermatophyte. Everybody's seen the commercial for Lamisil when they have the little dermatophyte jumping under the nail and kind of growing and recreating itself and causing a whole bunch of issues with the nail. Usually you can see that with discoloration. The nail gets thick, it gets crumbly, it gets ugly, it gets nasty, it gets brittle. That's when people come to see me. Right, right. And, you know, for our family docs who are listening, on physical exam, you sort of mentioned some of the physical exam findings that we'll see, the crumbly nails, the discoloration, and things like that. You know, this is something I see in my practice a lot. For us family doctors and doctors who treat this, you know, what would be our first-line go-tos with nail fungus? You know, what should we go to first in terms of treatment? With podiatry, the way we're trained is we have to get down there and thin that nail out because a lot of treatments, whether they're topical, usually the topical ones we usually try as a first line of defense. And the nail has to be thinned out because if the nail isn't thinned out, some of the topical medications can't penetrate that thick dermatophyte layer. Actually, one of the other things, even before that, is you may want to take a culture because sometimes a thick, discolored nail can be bacterial. It could be a yeast, so it may not necessarily be a fungus. I think that's actually a really good point is taking a culture to be sure of the actual diagnosis. Okay, that's good. And so do you often start then with the topicals after thinning the nail if it's very thick, or do you start with the orals? What is your, say, first-line go-to? You know what? I usually start with the topicals. Unfortunately, a lot of those topicals aren't covered by insurances, but there are some nice over-the-counter medications that will work very well, like Carillac, Ketoconazole, or I think there's even a Lamisil cream. They're not necessarily indicated for nail fungus, but we use them in some see some good results. Great. And then when do you choose to, to do the oral treatments then? What would say, no, I'm not going to do the topicals. Maybe we've sent our patient to the podiatrist. You've, you've thinned down their nails, started them on topicals, or we've done that. You know, when would you say, let's bump up the treatment? You know what? That's after all else has failed. A lot of people are concerned about the oral medications because they're concerned about hepatic function, liver function in reference to the orals. But when I have given the orals, nobody's ever had a problem. But you do want to make sure the liver enzymes are normal. But when we give the orals, usually after all else has failed. Now, one treatment that they have, even before we get to the orals, is usually laser treatment. Hmm, interesting. Actually, in my office, we do a laser treatment where we put a carbon solution under the nail and we use a laser and it kind of like obliterates the nail fungus. It's usually 60 to 70% effective. Now, if that doesn't work, then you have to suggest orals. But the only problem with the laser is it's not an insurance-based you know, product. Interesting. The orals, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But the orals are really like kind of like the last-ditch effort, I would say. The laser, this is very interesting. So it's not really covered by insurance is what you're saying? Never. And then is it a one-time treatment and then the patient is completed? Or how, how long do you need to... Let's, let's do each treatment type, if you don't mind. The topicals, the laser, and the oral. How long would we need to treat the patient with each of those modalities? Well, here's the thing. With the 
Topical medications, usually it, it can become kind of cumbersome because you have to use it every day for weeks and months for the nail to grow out for you to see any type of results if you're going to even see any results. The laser treatment usually requires two to three treatments, and you still have to wait a few months for the nail to grow out to see if the new healthy nail grows out, then you will see that in a few months because you have to wait for the nail to grow. It doesn't destroy the fungus and it disappears. It has to grow out. Okay, okay. The oral, you have to take that. It's a 90-day treatment. Uh, there's uh, a pill medication which you take for 90 days straight. Then there's another one called Spornox Pulse Pack where you take four pills a day for seven days. Then you do nothing for three weeks. Then you do it again. Then do nothing for three weeks. But you do that for a 90-day process. So you only take a medicine for three weeks out of the 90 days, but the medication's in your system for 90 days. So it all takes, none of it's a quick fix. It just doesn't work like that. No matter how you treat the nail, it's not going to be a quick fix. I mean, there's also the option of removing the nail and treating the nail bed. That doesn't often work. You have to use something to actually kill the fungus at the root. So that's very helpful. I think this is a really great description of different treatment options that we can provide patients and discuss with them. That's great. You know, let's move on to ingrown toenails. This is something that when I see as a family doc, I remember when I was a resident, I learned how to treat ingrown toenails and remove them. And I, I, I don't know, it was tough for me <laughs> to say that. I think it's still is. Can you talk to us a little bit about ingrown toenails? A patient coming into the family doc or internist's office and their foot hurts and you can tell it's ingrown. Maybe it's a little infected. There might be a little pus. What are we going to see? What are they going to complain of? And how should we approach this? You know, the funny thing is, ingrown toenails, the younger you are, the worse they usually are. And I say that because older people, when an ingrown toenail starts to bother them, an ingrown toenail is when a part of the nail begins to fold into the skin. It could be because you cut the nails wrong, a bad pedicure, or you may have stubbed your toe that caused the nail to redirect in its growth path, and it may be pushing into the skin. But as an adult, as soon as you start to feel that pain on the side of the nail, and it could be either toes, typically the big toe, but it could be any of the toes, they come to the doctor. Now, what you see, especially as a family doc, I'm sure you see those teenagers that come in and say, you know, my toes been bothering me for a couple of weeks, and they'll take off their socks. Yes. And you'll see this big, red, puffy, mm-hmm. just nasty toe. Yes. And you can <laughs> see the nail growing. It's usually the big toe. And you can see this nail just kind of growing into the corner. The, the side of it's red. You have this kind of paronychia type look to it. And usually it's some drainage and, and stuff. But right. treatment is simple. Uh, it's usually some local anesthetics, sometimes some antibiotics. And um, you take a sterile instrumentation. You just kind of take that nail and remove it from that border. It doesn't take that long to do, 10 minutes or so. Most people have an issue with the needles they have to get in their toes, but usually I tell the teens, if you wouldn't have waited two months, we wouldn't have to do so much. Right. No, that's, that's a really great point. And you said it's, it's really not a big deal. I, I, I say to you, it's easy for you to say. <laughs> easy for you to say. Yeah. You know, let me ask you this. This is something, uh, this is a question actually I have, you know, uh, personally, you know, I see a lot of this in the office. I'm a family doc and oftentimes I will refer at this point to podiatry for the removal of the nail because I'm, I just can't do it. I <laughs> just can't right. stomach it. it. it, it yeah. But um, is there any evidence for soaks, you know, foot soaks or things like that? Do you recommend any soaks while they're waiting to get in to see you? we got them on the antibiotics and, and all that stuff. What, what do you think about that? That's dangerous, especially when you start going into the realm of diabetes. Okay. Here's the thing. The issue with the ingrown toenail, there's an offending nail that's penetrating the skin. This nail is dirty. Just by way of being in socks and shoes and just regular everyday walking, the nail is, is dirty. You know, and the skin itself is dirty on any given time. So what happens is if somebody's thinking, well, let me soak it and it'll get better, it's not going to get better because that nail is within the skin. The only way to to effectively treat ingrown toenail is to surgically remove the offending nail border. Sure, sure. Okay, good. That's very helpful advice. Let's move on. You mentioned sort of diabetic feet. Let's move right on to diabetic foot care. This is a huge topic. A mainstay of, of our patients in this country are diabetic, and we know the importance of diabetic foot care. Let's talk about from a podiatrist's perspective. What do you wish that we as family docs, internists, general practitioners who are seeing diabetic feet, what do you wish that we would maybe be better at doing or evaluating or, or treating? You know, What can we do better in diabetic foot care? You know what? I would say the only 
thing is just to make sure they see a foot specialist. I've seen several patients who happen to see either meet somebody I know or see an advertisement for myself somewhere, and they'll say, well, you know, my friend told me I should go see a foot doctor because I have diabetes. But then sometimes I'll say, well, what about your medical doctor? Do they tell you to go see a foot doctor? And sometimes it's gotten better over the years, I will admit. But generally, a lot of people will say, yeah, no, they didn't say anything about it. They'll have me take off my shoes, but they won't necessarily recommend me to a foot doctor. And I say that's extremely important because I can't tell you, and again, I do this every day, so, you know, I see it more than the average person, of course. When somebody will come in just for, uh, you know, hey, I want you to check out my foot or something like that, and they may have um, discoloration of the nail, but it may not be a fungus. It may be a, a hematoma or bleeding under the nail, so which I have to remove the nail. And then once I remove the nail, I see they have a little moderate infection under there. And they'll come to me because they see this little thing, and they heard that they should go see a foot doctor, but they weren't necessarily directed to see a foot doctor by their primary care physician. Mm, that's and, that's a great and, point. You know, don't get me wrong. It may be, you know, two out of ten times something like that will happen, but sometimes people will have these little nagging things going on on their feet that they won't pay attention to because if their primary care doctor doesn't deem it as important, they may not deem it as important. And I've seen enough to know that feet, when people start having those massive issues with their feet, you know, then comes depression and things of that nature. And I'd rather just be the person to just take care of it, get them okay. And if the primary care doctor can help me with that, then, you know, perfect. But like I said, it's gotten better over the years. Right. No, that's that's actually a really good take-home point is that as primary care physicians, we need to be referring our patients for diabetic foot exams. Now, what's the recommendation for frequency that you suggest we recommend our patients to go see you or another podiatrist for their diabetic foot care? How often? That goes along with what's going on with the issue. I have a diabetic now who has a wound. It opens up, and we can't figure out why. I mean, I've referred him to infectious disease. Him and the primary care doctor have gotten together, and we can't figure out why this guy's wound keeps opening and closing. So somebody like him, he needs to come see me every three or four weeks just to make sure everything's okay. Regular general care, if it's a diabetic who really doesn't have a lot of problems, um, four times a year. Really? Uh, yeah. Really? Okay. So even for the routine screening, you know, patient with no particular issues that's a diabetic, you do recommend four times a year? You know why? Because if they start getting uh, diabetic symptomology like peripheral neuropathy, mm-hmm. what happens is they may have issues and can't necessarily feel them right. and may not mention it to the primary care physician. I had a patient who I was doing a, an exam with, and I kid you not, I talked to this patient for five minutes. I said, do you have any numbness and tingling in your feet? They said no. They said no several times. And then finally at the end of my examination, they said, well, I can't feel my feet. Interesting. <laughs> okay, Interesting. So. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's very, very important. Treat the feet like they're just as important as any other part of the body. It gets complex. It gets complicated. Some of the treatments aren't as simple as it may seem. You know, and, you know, I've seen the good and the bad and the ugly as far as foot health and diabetes. And all I say is, you know, give your foot doctor a chance to take a look at it and see what's going on. promise you we do a good job. <laughs> Perfect. Wonderful. You know, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Reach MD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and I'm speaking with Dr. Masai Smith, and we're speaking about common foot problems and their management. Let's start with bunions, okay? What are some symptoms that patients will present with? And then how do we as physicians maybe grade the symptoms? You know, how do we know what's severe versus not severe when it comes to a bunion? Well, when you're talking about bunions, um, mild, moderate, and severe, usually that's the structural look of it. I mean, if somebody has a little bump at that big toe, and most people, most of your listeners listening know what a bunion is. A lot sure. of women don't want to admit they have bunions, but yeah, they probably do. Right. You have that bump on the side of your big toe. Sometimes it causes the toe on top of that bump to angle like toward the outside of your foot. Sometimes that can be very mild. Sometimes it can be moderate. And everybody's seen grandma's feet where that bunion is way over. It can get moderate to severe. Then there's symptomology, and typically the symptomology is pain. You know what? From a surgical standpoint, it could be a severe bunion, but if it's not causing you any pain, 
I'm not doing anything about it. Interesting. Okay. You know, I don't want to put you in the worst position that you are in. I don't want to take a position where your toe is not hurting and I do surgery on you and all of a sudden it hurts because of postoperative issues. You don't want to do that. And plus, they're more difficult to treat the worse they are. You know, that, that's, I think, a really interesting point is, you know, the symptomatic nature of bunions. Basically, what you're saying is structurally, it's not a problem if it's not a problem for the patient. Exactly. Let me ask you this. Are there any preventive measures that someone, a patient can take to either prevent a bunion or uh, halt the progression of a bunion? Or is this like genetic? Or is it, is it functional? Is it is shoes they wear? What, you know, what do we tell our patients about care? It's typically a genetic thing. If, if mom and dad has big old bunions, usually you're predisposed. But one of the things you can do... I look at orthotics, the uh, orthopedic shoe inserts, and many athletes wear them, and um, everyday people wear them, and I disperse them every day. I just got a pair for a patient today. I tell people those are almost like a retainer, like a retainer for your teeth from a dentist. It kind of holds things in place. It doesn't improve anything. It doesn't make things worse. It kind of just holds things in place. Sometimes a good foot exam is perfect for what you may need because the foot specialist could identify what type of structural issues you may be dealing with, flat feet, high arch feet, maybe you do have a bunion, maybe you have that pain in the balls of your feet. Women who wear those high heels know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so sometimes you can use a good orthotic device to kind of structurally maintain the structural aspects of your feet to kind of reduce the evolution of a bunion. Sure, sure. You know, as a woman, I have to say, you mentioned high heels and things like that. Do high heels contribute to bunions? Let's say you're not necessarily genetically predisposed to having them. Can wearing certain shoes make them more likely, or is that really not so much the issue? Oh, no, it's actually a perfect environment for a bunion. The bunion gods love high heels. <laughs> the bunion gods. <laughs> yeah, the higher the heel, and, you know, it, it, when you have that toe box that's very narrow, it pushes the toe over just as much. There's particular ligaments and tendons, and what you're doing is you're giving some of uh, an advantage because you're pushing it over, and if you wear high heels enough, it kind of pushes that toe over, over, over. And you can imagine years in a high-profile job, and you're wearing high heels every day, that eventually that bunion is going to become more pronounced, and genetics don't have anything to do with it. It's the genetics of the shoe. I see. So I say four-inch heels and below in moderation. Wear them when you have to, but wear some nice little slick sneakers when you can. Okay, no, that's actually, that's really good advice. So um, just to close on the bunions, then in terms of referrals from, you know, when we refer as, as family docs or primary care physicians, would that be mostly kind of what you were talking about in the beginning when a patient is symptomatic then? Yeah, okay. yes, I, I would. Uh, unless they're diabetic and you see some redness around there sure. and you just want them to take a look at it. But if, if you got a good foot doctor, will, will definitely treat them accordingly. Like if they're in pain, let's do something about it. If they're not in pain, we'll keep a look at it from time to time and make sure they're okay. Sure, sure. That sounds great. We're putting you to work today, I tell you. Um, plantar fasciitis, something that we often see in the office, people coming in. Can you, um, can you sort of run down a little bit of what our patient might complain of that should prompt us to think plantar fasciitis? What are some of the symptoms in the physical exam findings? You know what? I always tell patients plantar fasciitis is so easy to diagnose because the pain is in the back of the heel. When you try to get up in the morning, it hurts like crazy. And it's an easy diagnosis because there's not much back there but your Achilles tendon, which everybody's familiar with, and your heel bone. So when you come in with that pain, I'm almost 90% sure you have plantar fasciitis. Now people are saying, what is that? You have a ligament on the bottom of your foot that for some reason, either it could be weight gain, activity, you decide to get that, you know, that, that New Year's body in place and you start running on the treadmill when you haven't done it in 10 years, and you can stress that ligament on the bottom of your heel. And when you do that, sometimes it takes it a while to adjust to the new activity and it just hurts like crazy. Everybody knows it because they try to get up in the morning, it hurts. Whenever you sit for a period of time at your desk or whatever, 
and you stand up and it hurts. That's called post-static dyskinesia. That's when you're at rest and then you start activity and it hurts like crazy. So as a family doctor, patient comes in complaining of these symptoms. We do our exam. We suspect this may be the case. What are our first-line options? Where do we, what do we do for the patient first? I would go with home exercise plan, stretching exercises, and over-the-counter pain medication. There are uh, specific stretching exercises that can be easily Googled, heel pain stretching exercises. And one of the basic ones, take a bottle of ice water, freeze it, roll it under your heel. Over-the-counter medication can be simple as Aleve or Motrin. Then after that, then you have to go injection therapy. Cortisone injections are not a bad thing. They're not a tough injection, about two or three seconds of discomfort. Injected on the medial aspect of the heel to try to calm the plantar fascia down. Now, after that, you know we're talking surgical. Now, here's the thing I like the family doctors to know. Surgery for heel pain is probably the easiest surgery we do. In fact, in the past 30 days, I've done four cases. And the reason being because it's a, the reason why we have to take it to the OR because we, have to, we do have to put an instrument in there, so we want everything to be totally sterile and, anesthesiolog- and the anesthesiologist will put you in kind of a twilight sleep. But it only takes about 10 minutes to do. So anybody out there think they need surgery because their heel pain is, you know, on a scale 1 to 10 is a 10 and they can barely walk, sometimes it's worth it just to see your foot specialist and get the procedure. It's really simple. It's really to the point, and actually, after the procedure, you can walk on it. Sure. Now, let me ask you this. Is there any role for physical therapy in plantar fasciitis, or do you not feel like that's something that we should recommend for patients? What are your thoughts about that? You know what? I did skip physical therapy. You're absolutely right, Doc. No, physical therapy is always an option. If any of the palliative stuff work, if exercises don't work, and that's kind of why you do the home exercise plan in my head, that's physical therapy. But actually, send them to an actual physical therapist, you can do that. You can do that, but... The way things are now, people don't have a lot of time sure. to do physical therapy, so automatically we think home exercise plans. So that's kind of where I bundle therapy in my head. Now, if they have time to do it, we could send them for what? I, I think they do heat therapy, whirlpool, range of motion therapy of the heel and ankle, and try to do the Achilles tendon stretch to kind of stretch out that plan of fascia. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Masai Smith, America's foot doctor. You can find him at drmasai.com. That is D-R-M-A-A-S-I.com. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle. You've been listening to ReachMD. To download this podcast and others in the series, please visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.